Okay, when I was a kid, I didn't naturally believe that God was real, okay? I know most kids kind of naturally believe there is a God, but I guess as a kid, I was like naturally an atheist or something. And so as a kid, I had a hard time believing that God was real. In fact, I, I think it was probably because I couldn't see God. I was just kind of like, okay, you guys are all telling me about this guy none of us can see. I, I can't see God. And so I remember as a kid kind of doing the logical work in my head to go, is God real or not? And one of the, the ways that I kind of tested that, that theory or the, that line of questioning in my head is I watched how my dad prayed. My dad, he prays a lot. Even if you meet him now, he might just break out into prayer at the dinner table just to himself or in frustration. And so my dad prays a lot. And so as a kid, I saw my dad praying a lot. I heard my dad praying a lot. And what I noticed about my dad's prayers is they sounded very much like just a a real conversation with a real person. And so I remember as a real little kid thinking to myself as I was going, is God real or not? And then hearing my dad's prayers, I would think to myself, well, I know my dad's not crazy. Now I'm not so sure. But then I was like, I know my dad's not crazy. And, and it sounds like he's talking to a real person. So I think God is real. And this is kind of how I came to believe in God in the, in the first place as a child. Just going, okay, I know my dad's not crazy. He's talking to someone genuinely. And, and, and what I realized, too, is my dad's prayers, they kind of showed me a lot about who God is. His prayers were kind of my introduction to the sort of God that, that my dad worshipped and now I worship. That I realized... That, that God was the sort of God that wanted to hear your prayers. I realized that, that, that God was the sort of God that wanted kind of your vulnerability and authenticity and your real self in your prayers. Like you didn't have to put on some kind of religious show in order to talk to God or approach God in, in some way. And so I, I kind of, through my dad's prayers, I, I, I learned about God. I learned he wants to relate to us personally. Uh, and he wants us to be authentic. He, he loves our authentic selves. And so these are all the kinds of different ways that I, I learned about God just from watching my dad's prayers. And, and I bring all that up because today in 1 Kings 8, in our We Want a King series, we're looking again at the life of King Solomon. So we've been spending the, the, this series looking at the first three kings of Israel. In the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at King Solomon in particular. And today, what we're going to see is this giant ceremony he puts on with the people of Israel to dedicate the temple to the Lord. Last week, we saw him building the temple. This week, we see him dedicating the temple to the Lord. And the vast majority of 1 Kings 8... are really just a series of prayers that Solomon prays as he dedicates this temple to the Lord. And I actually think through these prayers that Solomon prays, we actually get to know God and see who God is. That's what's amazing about prayers in the Bible. They're not just prayers there uh, just to be recorded down. Prayers in the Bible often show us either how we can relate to God or who God is himself. And so we see a lot in this prayer in 1 Kings 8 who God is through this prayer that Solomon prays. And so here's what we're going to do today. There's a lot in 1 Kings 8. So I actually encourage you guys after this, go and read through 1 Kings 8 on your own and see what you can glean from it. Because I'm only going to pull three highlights from Solomon's prayers to me from 1 Kings 8. Just three things that are sticking out to me, leaping off the page to me about Solomon's prayers. 
And each one of these highlights point to aspects of who God is and and the sort of God that we worship. So that's what we're going to do today. Three highlights from this prayer that point to the sort of God that we worship. Okay, so let me, let me start us off by kind of talking about how 1 Kings 8 opens up. It doesn't open up with Solomon's prayers. It actually opens up with this dedication ceremony beginning. So what happens is uh, Solomon kind of gathers all the leaders and elders of Israel, and I'm sure anyone else who wanted to come take part in this dedication of the temple. And if you remember last week, this temple was to replace the tabernacle, which was kind of like the mobile temple of the Lord. It was like a tent version of the temple of the Lord. And so he gathers all these elders, leaders, and these priests, and the priests start bringing in these holy items that we see in the Old Testament. They bring in the tent of meeting where Moses would sit in this tent and talk to the Lord almost like face to face. They bring in the Ark of the Covenant, which carried the Ten Commandments in it. You remember the Ark of the Covenant, they couldn't just touch it outright because of the manifest presence of the holiness of God on it. And so they had to have these long poles that they used to, to kind of carry it into the temple. And there was a few other, uh, any kind of other things that were in that tabernacle, that mobile temple of the Lord, they, they brought and, and carried to the temple of the Lord. And so then what happens is they get to the temple and they bring the stuff into the, they bring the Ark of the Covenant in particular into the deepest part of the temple known as the most holy place. And the priests, they come out of the temple and we see what happens next in the story in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 8. And it says this, and when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Okay, so they bring all the stuff in. They, they're exiting out of the temple. As they're exiting out of the temple, this cloud... This dark cloud just covers the temple, covers everywhere. It's so thick of a cloud that the priests themselves, they can't stand in the midst of this cloud. And this cloud was something that God had done throughout Israel's history to show that he was there, to show his manifest presence in, in some way. And so you see this in, uh, when, he, when the Israelites first are rescued from Egypt by God. God guides them in the day by a cloud. You see this when Moses goes into that tent of meeting in, in Exodus and throughout the first five books of the Bible. That when he's meeting with the Lord as if face to face almost, talking to the Lord, getting guidance, the, the cloud rests on this tent of meeting that, that Moses, uh, where Moses spent time with the Lord. And so as, as Solomon makes this temple of the Lord to replace the mobile temple of the Lord, God, in one sense, he blesses this, right? He goes, okay, this is what I'm going to do here. This is my manifest presence is here. Like, I, I want you guys to know that I bless what is going on here. And so he comes back once again with this cloud that we see throughout the Old Testament. And so, so that's kind of how 1 Kings 8 starts. And then Solomon, in the next few verses, he just starts to launch in to all kinds of prayers to God as he dedicates the temple. And so again, I want to give three highlights from those prayers. And let's start with the first highlight, the first thing that, that's jumping out to me uh, from, from these prayers. And it's this. It's this phrase that Solomon says, 
at least two times in the prayer, and he says, there is no God like you. He says that to God, there is no God like you. Let me read one of those excerpts, verses 22 through 24. It says this, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you have declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Okay, let's pause there. So this is the first highlight to, of the prayer to me. There is no God like God. There, there is no God like Yahweh. Whenever you're reading the Old Testament and you see a capital L-O-R-D for Lord, that is God's name that he told Moses at the burning bush that Israel used as God's name. God's name is Yahweh. And Solomon in this prayer is saying, there is no God like Yahweh. He's a covenant keeper. He has steadfast, faithful, loyal love. The God of the Bible does not present himself as one God among a bunch of many God peers. He presents himself as a God unlike any other. Right? A lot of the times he shows himself even to be the real God of the universe, not some fake God that was made with hands by humans. And I just think this is key to understanding who God presents himself to be in the Bible. There's no God like him. There's no spiritual being like him. There's nothing like him. He is utterly unique and different. In fact, that's seen in how he keeps covenants that are often broken by humans. That's seen by his loyal, faithful love that he has in abundance for his people. And I think it's just good for us to notice that God presents himself as a God unlike any other. Right? God, in the Bible, he does not present himself as part of the spirituality puzzle. He presents himself as the builder of the spirituality puzzle. This is who God presents himself to be. He's unlike any other. Which just kind of led me to thinking for myself this week. Like, how often do I spend time praying this sort of prayer about God? First, just going, God, there's none like you. And then secondly, kind of almost praying in more, a prayer that's a little bit more like applying that idea. Like, how much time do I spend praying going, okay, here's this thing I want to be my God. Here's how you're better than that God. How much time do I do the work in prayer to, to think about and realize that God really is a God like no other? How, how often am I actively going, okay, God, you're better than this thing I want more than you. You're better than this thing I want more than you. You're better than this God I want more than you. Right? Most of us were not, most of us in this room were not lured by gods of other religions, although some of us are. Most of us are lured to make good things gods over our lives. Good things that God even wants us to have in certain ways uh, at times and in certain contexts. 
Most, that's what lures us often. We want some kind of uh, God we can touch. We want some kind of thing, some kind of man-made thing often to be our God. And I wonder if in prayer we need to do the work to go, God is better than those things. Like how many of us are convinced that, that Yahweh is a better God than money? How many of us are convinced that Yahweh is a better God than security? How many of us are convinced in our prayers that God is a better God than health? How many of us are convinced that, that Yahweh is a better God than the perfect romantic partner? How many of us are convinced that Yahweh is a better God than the American dream? How many of us are convinced that Yahweh is a better God than the validation of others? It seems to me very often when those things start to creep into our lives, we're actually not all that convinced that Yahweh is better than those things. And I think this truth, that God is a God unlike any other, needs to get deep down into our bones because it's far easier to be convinced that all those tangible things are better gods. All those things we make for ourselves as gods are better gods because we can touch them, we can feel them. Right? I can touch money, so at times it seems better than God. I can feel security in laws and locks and security systems. I can hold a romantic partner. I can touch the white picket fence of the American dream. I can hear the laughter of my peers. And because of all of that, I'm drawn to make those things God. I'm drawn to forget that God is a God way better than those things. That those things don't even compare to Yahweh, the God of the Bible. The real God. He keeps covenant and loves me loyally far better than any of those things can. And so church, I think we should seek to have prayers about this God who is unlike any other, where there's no God like our God. I think we should seek to have prayers that reflect on this idea, not just saying it about God, but doing the work of comparing the God of the Bible, who is the God of the universe, to all of these other things that we make our gods and, and tangibly prefer to be our gods at times. I think we should, I think if we can do an honest prayerful comparison, we'll see there's no God like Yahweh. I think it could be helpful and healthy for our faith to prayerfully compare the gods we're tempted to worship to the God of the Bible. And it might help us to gain eyes to see that he's a God like no other. And so that's, that's the first highlight of the prayer to me, that God is a God like no other. There's no God like him. Okay, on to the, the, the second. I almost spilled my water. That was terrifying. Um, that's the most scared I've ever been up here. Um, uh, a second highlight for me to look at is this, there's this dynamic in the prayer that's happening, and I'm going to kind of explain it. There's this dynamic where Solomon is praying uh, about God, especially when he sees this cloud of glory, and he says, God, like, you dwell in this temple forever. 
And that dynamic is met with the other side of Solomon's prayers a little bit later in, in this ceremony where he says, God, actually, you can't dwell in a temple. Only your name can. There's no place that can house you. Only your name can dwell here. And I want to talk through that dynamic. But let's look at it first uh, biblically, like what the verses say, not just me explaining it. Uh, first place we see it, verses 12 and 13. It says this. Then Solomon said... The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Okay, so this is Solomon going, okay, the cloud of the Lord, the glory of the Lord is on this temple. God, I have made a place for you to live forever. And then look what he says in verses 27 through 30. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to this plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people, Israel. When they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So then, in verses 27 through 30, he says, actually, you don't really dwell here. You can't really dwell here. You're beyond dwelling in a physical place. Really, only your name can dwell here. And only your name, your name actually is even powerful enough to do all of these things. Now, I, the reason this jumps off the page for me, this is highlighted to me in this prayer, this dynamic, is because this is important theology we see about God throughout the Bible. And it's this, God is transcendent, and yet he interacts in time in place with us. It's, it's fascinating to me how Solomon highlights this in 1 Kings 8 in his prayer. He says, a temple you could dwell in forever, but actually it's just your name that can be here. In one sense, God's presence is in the temple in a cloud, and in another sense, it's just his name. It's impossible for God to dwell in a physical place like this. This is big theology about God. God is transcendent. He cannot be housed. He is beyond creation in one sense. He is utterly holy and set apart from creation in one sense. And yet, hand in hand with that idea about God, is he stoops low to be part of creation interacting in real time and space and giving glimpses and tastes of himself. This is all throughout the Bible, this dynamic. So I don't really have a lot to say about that except that God is so complex that we don't have categories to fully grasp him at times, and yet he wants to make himself graspable. He's so complex that we can't grasp him at times. That's how transcendent he is. And yet he stoops low and essentially says, hold on. T have a taste. See who I am. 
This dynamic of God is all throughout the Bible, especially you see it in the Old Testament. A lot of people in our culture, when you talk to them about like what they believe about God and the universe, they're going to say, well, I believe in some power out there. I believe there's some power beyond creation. They might not say creation, but some power beyond the material world out there that kind of runs the universe, governs the universe. And, and a lot of them will say, if you tap into that power, that's kind of like what all humans should, should seek to do or whether they see it or not, that's what they want to tap into. And I want to say to those people, you're kind of right. You're kind of right. The God of the universe is this transcendent power beyond this material world. But then I would also kind of say, well, you're also a little bit wrong because I think that power has a name and wants you to know his name. God is a transcendent power that rules and runs and has created the universe, but that power has a name. And that power is stooped in low and said, hey, my name is Yahweh. I want you to know me. I want you to grasp me. I want you to taste me. That's just wonderful news to me. There is a transcendent power. And a lot of people in our culture sense that in some way. But that power is a being with a name who created and rules the universe. And that being loves his people and has moved close to us. So God is transcendent and he has moved in close. Both things are true about God. And we see that in this prayer of Solomon's. Okay, third highlight. Third highlight for me from this prayer, the final highlight we'll look at, is how this prayer points out the human desire for rest and how God, the promise keeper, is the only one that can deliver a true rest to us. Let's read verses 54 through 56, which was part of the the scripture reading where it, ta- where it talks about this thing that's highlighted to me. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with his hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he has promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by, Mer- by Moses, his servant. Let's pause there. So the rest that Solomon's referring to there, he's actually talking about the land that the Israelites dwell in, and, and probably the temple itself. Uh, because Israel's story was they were slaves in Egypt, and they did not have rest. And God rescues them and says, I'm going to give you rest, rest, and part of the way that I'm going to do that is by giving you a land in the Old Testament called the promised land, which ends up being Israel. I'm going to give you a land to rest in. Right? Even part of Israel's story is that they had to wander the wilderness for 40 years. And so this idea of rest becomes more prominent to them, more important to them. God is saying, I'm going to give you rest from your oppressors. I'm going to give you rest from your wanderings. And so when Solomon is talking about this rest that the Lord has given, he's going, God, you've given us rest in this land and even more rest because you're letting this temple not be a mobile tent anymore, but a standalone temple. And so Solomon's going, God, thank you for this rest. Because the Israelites... 
were a weary people. They felt tired. They felt like they needed rest. And I think the same rest that they felt like they needed is the same rest we feel like we need. The story of God making the earth says this, that God made the earth in seven days. Really, he made the earth in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. He stopped creating. He stopped making things. He stopped doing this work of creation. And then on that seventh day, he rested. And then you see, in, in the, the people of God, they kind of follow this pattern to, to, to kind of echo the, the creation of the universe. They, they have a Sabbath day, a seventh day, where they rest. I, I, I believe that that. Part of God's vision for human flourishing was that even without sin in the world, we would work six days and rest on the seventh with God and have a day of pray and play with him, as Eugene Peterson puts it. And, and so this is why the Sabbath became a mandate amongst the people of God. It was reflecting something foundational that God had done in creation. It was something God made for his people to flourish. But then once sin came into the world, rest, resting with God, because becomes something that we still all desire and want because it's all of a sudden not easily attainable. Or I should say, and it all of a sudden becomes not easily attainable. In fact, one of my buddies, he talks about, he heard this from somebody, but he always talks about, he thinks every literal move we make is a move to get more comfortable. <laughs> like he says, every single physical movement every human makes is just trying to get more comfortable. And I resonate with that. I go, I think that's true about me at least, right? I lay down a lot. And so, but I th he says that a lot because he, it resonates with him. And I think it resonates with us. There is this thing in us that's a desire for rest and more rest because Sin in this world makes it nearly impossible to find any sort of true rest, right? With sin and humanity, it's really hard to rest. And with creation itself being broken by sin, it's really hard to rest. This is a weary world. Everyone's tired. Even in one of the most like, financially flourishing like, countries in the world, we're all the time going, I'm tired. I'm really tired. We're all tired, whether it's physically, emotionally, mentally. And so then when I get to this portion of Solomon's prayer, and he's talking about God is a promise keeper, but specifically, he's a promise keeper that promises to give rest, and he's going to deliver on that rest. I say to myself, is that just for the people of Israel? Because I want some of that. <laughs> like, is that just for them? Or do we get some of that? And then I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Look what Jesus says to, to anyone that can hear it. In Matthew 11:28. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for your lives, you could say. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So although the people of God in this dedication had a moment of rest in their lives as the people of God with the temple, it was not enough. 
They need a God who is rest. A God who is the promised land that we're all looking for. A God whose presence gives rest and flourishing. And Jesus, God in the flesh, comes onto the scene and he says to the Israelites in a time when they thought that rest was long gone, he says, come to me to find that rest. Right? Now I'll free your land and you'll get that rest. I'll bring us back to the promised land. He says, come to me and I'll give you that rest, which to me means that God has always had a bigger vision for the rest that he promised Israel. He's always had a bigger vision for it. God knows you need rest and you can only find it in and through Jesus. Jesus is the promise keeper in the flesh. And Jesus had a bigger vision for rest than the Israelites had. And this is good news that Jesus said these things in, in at least two ways. It means, one, one day there will be rest. You will not have to toil in this world under the oppressive power of sin anymore. Your body that keeps breaking down one day won't. Your mind that is exhausted will one day be clear. Your heart that aches will one day ache no more. That's part of Jesus' promise to rest. God, the promise keeper, is going to bring a rest better than anything you've ever experienced. It's good news in a second way, though, too. It's good news because I think it means that right now, in some way, you can find rest in Jesus. I have this wild idea about Jesus. I think he meant what he said. I, and it is wild. <laughs> I think we have to be careful because he's talking a lot of metaphors. And I think that's some of the language here. I think he is talking about this rest that he's going to give eternally to the earth and to the universe and to us. But I also think that when Jesus was saying these things, giving them literal physical movements that they could do and partake in, coming to him, I think he was saying he has rest in his very presence to give out. And so even though I think Jesus is talking about the, the, the long way to rest that will come one day, I think part of the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is saying there is some level of rest that you can find in him while we await his return, bringing all the rest of the rest. How do we get it? We get it because through the cross, atoning for our sins and the resurrection, and Jesus sending the Spirit, we now have access to Jesus. Right? Little kid Anthony goes, where's Jesus? I don't see him. Jesus of the Bible says, I know you can't see me, but you have access to me. You can find me. You, you can get close to me. And so I think because of that dynamic, because of the Holy Spirit in us, we have access to Jesus because of what he did. And I think in some way, we can find some level of rest in him. So what does it mean for you and for me to find our rest in Jesus himself? Right? What would it look like for you to run to Jesus like you run to your pillow? Like what would it look like for you to run to Jesus like you run to Netflix at the end of the night? What would it look like for you to run to Jesus instead of run to your fridge? I'm just saying stuff I struggle with, okay guys? I don't know what you guys struggle with. But I think somehow 
Relationship with Jesus gives us a taste of that everlasting rest now. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm a rest chaser. I've been one my whole life. I've been trying to get comfortable my whole life in every way possible. My mom says in first grade, I said, hey, what's the lowest grade I could get and still pass? In first grade. And then I did it. And then I got C's the rest of my career. (laughs) Unless it was easy to not. (laughs) I've been a rest chaser my whole life. And I've only really found rest in Jesus. And the moments where I've only found true and real rest, it's when I found it in Jesus. And so I will rest in the promise keeper's promise to us that he's bringing rest rather than try to find my own rest. God is the God of all rest. And so there's a, there's a lot in that prayer in there. There's some beautiful stuff about God's mercy to us and, and Solomon asking about that as well, but we don't have time for that today. Those were just some of the highlights to me that, that stood out to me from this prayer. Again, I encourage you, Go back to 1 Kings 8 today. If today's like your Sabbath where you spend some more time with the Lord, read through 1 Kings 8 and see all these things about God throughout this prayer of Solomon's. But what we looked at today is there's no one like our God. God is transcendent and yet moves in close. And God is the only one that can promise and deliver a true rest. May all our prayers be directed to that God. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you present yourself to be. God, help us to see you're you're a God like no other. I really, it's like a fun thing to say to you, God, but I feel like I don't believe it a lot of the times. I feel like that I don't really think that. God, help us to see that about you. Help me to really see that about you. God, thank you for being transcendent and still moving in close. That our lives don't have to be these lives where we just wonder if you're out there somewhere, but we can know you're in close and you've come close to us. And God, help us to find rest in you. We're all tired, we're all weary. Honestly, God, I think because of sin in this world. There's no amount of human rest we could find that will truly feel rested. And so God, help us to figure out what it means for each of us to run to you and find our rest in you. And Holy Spirit, would you be merciful to us and would you allow us to experience rest in you? Because God, I know sometimes it's like I encourage us to do this or I encourage myself to do this and then it doesn't feel very restful. And so God, we're left with these tensions going, what's going on there? And so Holy Spirit, I just ask that even in those moments that you would be merciful to us and that we would experience some sort of rest in you. Jesus, we love you and we need you. Amen.